Hey, it's Greg Brady. Thanks for finding the Toronto Today podcast. We've got our November 5th edition of it here. We'll talk about the interesting concept of accountability. And certainly the military seems like it's going to be more accountable for acts or accusations of sexual misconduct. What's changed? We'll talk about it and relate it to this scandal brewing south of the border. But it's not just an American issue. Barstool Sports, pretty big deal. Dave Portnoy is the uh, founder of Barstool Sports, and almost everybody knows who he is. He had some scathing, violent sexual accusations pushed his way in an article on businessinsider.com. He's fighting back against them. I'll weigh in on with my thoughts about where this case goes and where it's not ready to go yet. All that coming up on the Toronto Today podcast, amongst other things. Ryan Imgren on the show, Joe Walsh on the show, Erica Eiffel on the show. You'll enjoy today's pod. It's great to have you along. Here we go. I'm going to localize some of this for you. Talk about this from a national perspective, but as well a massively popular uh, sports entrepreneur has been accused of some horrible, awful, clearly illegal things. But... His reputation precedes him, and I will explain that. We're getting into a better place just in the last 24 hours, just in the last 24 hours when it comes to military and sexual misconduct. It's been a problem. It could have been more of an issue during the election campaign. So what's happened in the last 24 hours? Well, civilian officials will now handle military sexual misconduct cases. And you might think, A, that's good, and B, Gee, where would they start? It feels like they're in the double digits. And you're not wrong about feeling either of those things. The new defense minister, Anita Anand, announces yesterday that, yeah, we're going to move this into the courtroom. We're not going to let the military investigate itself. There's a scene in The Departed. Phenomenal. Phenomenal. Scorsese gets his Oscar finally. Uh, Leonardo DiCaprio should have been nominated for Best Actor and wasn't. What What the hell? Leo's never been better. He should have won for that instead of The Revenant. But I could keep keep going on that on that front. And there's a scene where the Matt Damon character, who's a rat, says, hey, guess what? I got to investigate myself, meaning he's looking for the rat in SIU. He is that rat. Well, this feels like, to some extent, that's how we've handled military investigations in Canada. Okay, there's been a sexual misconduct file that's got, I don't know, a lot of sheets in it. And that's the problem. So how is it all going to happen? Well, we don't know all of those things, but there will be a transfer to outside police forces. Many people look at the cops themselves in Toronto and elsewhere. And again, I tell you, I hear from the good cops and the people that I trust and, you know, say this on the inside. They want things cleaned up. They want to look at each other and go, I know I'm riding with a cop as good as me. I know I'm riding with somebody who's got the same honorable intentions I do. But it's a tough system to clean up when all the investigation is done from the inside. Megan McKenzie's quoted in a Toronto Star story uh, by Jacques Gallant, a political reporter. And I like this quote, so I'm going to give her the attribution for it. No justice system is set up to handle sexual misconduct perfectly. And we know in the civilian system, you still have a pattern where victims are not believed. That's Megan McKenzie, an expert on military sexual misconduct at Simon Fraser University. But here's the here's the payoff. But what you don't have, Megan says. In the civilian justice system is this serious conflict of interest where service members that went to the academy together or served on deployments together or live on the same base are investigating one another. And that's a major difference from the civilian system. Amen. And that's what we got to move forward with. And that's where Anita Anand is getting thumbs up all around. It's hard to find somebody. Maybe you've got, uh, uh, you know, a holdout. Uh, an ex-military veteran, you would assume a male, you would assume, you would, uh, that is like, no, that's not how it should work. There's a code and the military will hold hold members of the military accountable. Well, that hasn't happened so far. Look at what we just went through in the NHL. How'd that work for internal in- investigations? How did the Chicago Blackhawks do investigating some of their own? How'd that go? How did it work with the NHL getting wind of what was happening with one of their 32 franchises now? Can't forget the Seattle Kraken and looking internally and making sure people are accountable for A, their actions and B, what they knew and when they knew it. Pretty lousy, huh? Let me switch to yesterday's news about uh, this basically, you know, multi hundred millionaire Dave Portnoy. 
You may not know who Dave Portnoy is. Let me explain. He runs Barstool Sports. That kind of started from nothing, pushed against, you know, the mainstream sports content and uh, and ended up becoming successful. It was obviously deemed as a return to some of the sports talk that kind of filtered through the airwaves in the 90s and 2000s. Full disclosure, obviously, I've worked in this field in a couple different markets, had some success, didn't want to do what I was doing anymore. And I'll explain that Barstool's had some influence of that in a couple minutes. But Business Insider yesterday published an investigative piece that alleges, quote, frightening and humiliating sexual interactions between Dave Portnoy, who who started Barstool Sports and is very much their face, and several different women. Two said Portnoy had filmed them without their consent. Not great. A text exchange between one woman and a friend shortly after she stayed with Portnoy reads this. I'm going to read you some of it, but she uh, describes, I was literally screaming in pain. He spit in my mouth. Apologies if that's too graphic. He choked me so hard I couldn't breathe. Not great if you're having breakfast, but it's reality and it's the accusation. And I can't imagine that there's any misunderstanding about that. This happened or it did not. Dave Portnoy is being set up and being lied about or he is a violent sexual predator. There's not a lot of, you know, not a middle ground here or misunderstanding. The article lists Portnoy's personal net worth at about $100 million. Portnoy's 44. The two women in the article were 19 and 20 years old at the time of their encounters with him. Both described being scared. One of the women said she became suicidal and was hospitalized a few days after meeting up with him. Now, here's where the struggle is. Dave Portnoy is hated by many, many people. He recorded a nine-minute video documenting a lot of that. How do I consider him as a fellow male, a fellow heterosexual male who likes sports? He's a creep. He's a misogynist. I've worked with creeps and misogynists. It's not great to work with creeps and misogynists. But all of that is very out in the open. He's famous. He's hated by hundreds of thousands of people. He said so yesterday, and it's true. I mean hated. It's not like, hey, we don't like your new album. Hey, you know, I didn't like that movie you did. You're doing too many superhero movies. Can you go back and do some rom-coms? That's not the hated I'm talking about. That's not that's not a local Toronto dude or woman on the radio uh, that you disagree with about how much we should be locked down or when we should take masks off. He's Hey, I mean hated with a capital H-A-T-E, but he knows that and he knows what he signed up for and no one's brought any of this on him but himself. But here's where I struggle with the story. He documents that this story was eight months in the making. It does seem like that is so. And Dave Portnoy might be a creep and he might be a misogynist, but we are taking a huge leap, okay, of logic and I want everything in this uh, in this file, every accusation to be listened to. There's a huge difference between believe all women all of the time and let's investigate every single accusation thoroughly. Of course, we have to do the latter. The former doesn't give somebody their day, doesn't give somebody the benefit of the doubt. Dave Portnoy is not going to get a lot of the benefit of the doubt from some people. I understand that. But here's the issue. No one's on the record here. No one approached police. Only pseudonyms are used. No one approached a coworker. None of that makes him innocent, but none of it makes him guilty either. And I'm not questioning the journalism and I'm not questioning the reporting, but so far there aren't real people and names behind this. Dave Portnoy is worth an awful lot of money. That's the other side. Okay. I'm inclined to believe that if uh, with, with Dave Portnoy and his front facing image of, yes, hey, I'm a misogynist, I'm a creep, I'm, I'm going to talk like it's 1986 about women. What are you going to do about it? I mean, that is his M.O. But we got to be careful here because he's so front facing on this. Let me parallel this with something that seemed to surprise many of you. And yet I'd heard about it in the underground prior to. And that's Jan Gomeshi. You know who was it? When I first moved here in 2007, I had, uh, you know, my family hadn't moved up here yet, and I had coffee, a platonic coffee, with somebody who knew Jan Gameshi. And she said, he's this, he's that, he's this, he's that. 
And I thought about that, and I poked that away in the recesses of my brain for about five years. Many people know someone who knows someone who's dated Jan Gameshi. And you know who wasn't considered a creep or icky or gross and not a misogynist? Jan Gameshi. You know what Gameshi was? And I don't think there's a problem saying this. He was cunning. He was crafty. He was a sociopath. He joined feminist groups in university. Okay? He'd march every time the Montreal massacre was documented. He'd make sure he was there front and center. And he'd force his way to the microphone and try and speak. He wrote cooing and funny songs as a member of Moxie Fruvis. Okay? Seemed like a cute guy, fun guy to hang around with. He'd have your back if you were a woman. He championed feminism. And despite the lack of a criminal conviction in that trial, it brought his entire empire tumbling down, didn't it? Of course it did. But you know what is there that's not there right now with Dave Portnoy's case? Real names, real people, criminal proceedings, people talking to the police. That may happen here. And I'm not, I'm not weighing in on whether I think Dave Portnoy is guilty or innocent of this. I don't know. But we do have to be incredibly careful. I do think there's a mob that wants to cancel Dave Portnoy no matter what. I do think there's people that really enjoy um, some schadenfreude about this aspect. And I don't know if he did this or not. I don't know. I'm not even going to weigh. I'm not stepping off that fence one direction or the other. But Gomeshi, when I first heard about those accusations, I, I'd heard enough. I, I'd heard enough and I had a sense of it. And I know why he didn't get convicted. I know why that was a really problematic case as we look back on it. And I know how much it hurt people that he wasn't. Portnoy's considered a massive D-bag, almost self-admitted. Like I said, Gomeshi, he could virtue signal with the best of them. If they gave out championship rings for virtue signaling, Gomeshi's Tom freaking Brady. Okay, he's a JG12, not TB12. The only problem, well, a, a number of them, is this one with Portnoy might just be too obvious. Now, I can admit patterns of behavior often follow people. O.J. Simpson, for years it was documented, had had domestic abuse calls, and the cops said, oh, Jew, settle down, don't do this, don't do that. There was talk about Bill Cosby for decades being a sexual predator before he was nailed and put in jail. And by the way, you noticed in the summer, he got out. <laughs> okay? Michael Jackson, do we even need to start? Okay? Eventually, there's more than just one accusation. There's countless accusations. So I think it's a really interesting concept here. I think the Portnoy thing is worth watching, but there's a lot of people in the sports media, a lot of people looking at this particular one, um, thinking there's the guy. It's so obvious he's going to get what he deserves here. And right now, I don't know how I can weigh in on that. And I don't know how they can. Again, really quick before I wrap, the amount of people in sports radio who worship Portnoy and see him as a role model, it's frightening. Okay? People think everyone's cleaned their act up in these environments, on social media, for the cameras. Look how cool I am. Look how much I care. But there's a little bit of a, he's pulling it off, so why can't I in their little cubicle when they sit there? I love doing sports radio, but getting out and being in this atmosphere, it's better culture. It's a massive difference. I've noticed it. There's more dominoes to fall. Anyway, um, we'll see where it goes with Dave Portnoy. All right, we love talking politics uh, south of the border with our next guest, and he's got a brand new podcast that's steaming up the Apple podcast charts. He said some great guests on so far. I've been able to dive into a couple episodes, and we love when he makes time for us here in the great city of Toronto, which he can come up to Toronto a lot easier than I come to Chicago. If only he would. He is Joe Walsh. Joe, it's great to have you on uh, up here in Canada's biggest city. Uh, and congratulations on White Flag with Joe Walsh. What a, what a rousing success. You must be thrilled with the reaction so far. Thanks, Greg. It's always good to be with you. I am. Look, it's just it's it's people across the divide talking to each other. We're so damn divided in this country. And John Cryer. Let's talk about that. I, you know, I got to hear a couple of the early episodes, but you get you got Ducky from Pretty in Pink. I mean, there's a lot more than that, but that's that. Our era is Pretty in Pink. It's not necessarily Two and a Half Men. That feels that that missed our generation a little bit. He's Ducky from Pretty in Pink, but a pretty outspoken guy 
in the media world. And and that's what I love about the podcast is, uh, is you're right. You've got people from different walks of life that might think differently. What can we find in common? What can we debate about and, and maybe enhance our knowledge? That's, that's what politics used to be, Joe. You know this, and you've talked about this. We, we live in our political silos in America. We're so tribal. We either tune in Fox News every night or MSNBC every night. And we rarely talk to people who are from another side. Uh, until we start to do that, I just think this country is going to continue to be divided. Let's start on Tuesday. I'm, I'm so eager to dig into some of the results and some of what we saw. And let's start in Minneapolis. Minneapolis, the city where George Floyd was murdered in, it's grisly. We talked about it. Accountability was reached uh, by the court system, by the justice system. and But Minneapolis voters stood up resoundingly with the, uh, with the concept of the slogan, defund the police, and said... Not on our watch. They voted 57% to 43% to keep the police department in place. What, what was your reaction to something so resounding when, let's face it, that, that, you know, that slogan can trend on Twitter. Uh, actors can talk about it. Musicians can talk about it. But the people in Minneapolis said, we don't want to be part of some social experiment here. You're not doing that in our city. I just kept thinking, Greg, that and a few of the other things this past election I just kept thinking most Americans, most Americans, most Americans, most Americans despise Trump and they want nothing to do with Trumpism. But most Americans are not progressives. Most Americans are not on the far left. Most Americans know that policing needs to be reformed, but you don't get rid of the police. You don't disband the police. You don't defund the police. And I'm not a Democrat, but I worry for the Democrats because they don't seem to understand that most Americans are not on the far left. And you've talked about this with the Republican Party. This was your divide with the Republican Party thinking, where does a conservative go now? If it's the party of Trump and I have conservative principles, even if they're moderately conservative principles, if I'm if I'm a Ronald Reagan guy, if I'm a if I even went back and was to some extent a Richard Nixon guy for for those that were a generation before yeah. us then there's nowhere to go but now we're seeing we're seeing sh- kind of cracks in that democrat base where people say i want to lean towards the middle i'm not out with i'm not down with all this wokeism i'm not down with with uh you know blowing up police departments and and i'm going to vote accordingly based on those principles it's a shame greg that uh biden hasn't been able to lead better than he has because Again, the Democrats have had a great opportunity, I mean, placed in their damn lap, to, to kind of realign our politics and grab all these people in the middle who are comfortable with Trump. And they're not comfortable with, you know, a lot of the cruelty that comes out of the Republican Party. But Biden has kind of sat back, and the average American, again, most Americans, they've seen the progressive voices be the loudest. That's a real concern for Democrats. Joe Walsh is our guest. His fantastic new podcast is called White Flag with Joe Walsh, former Republican uh, congressman. The one thing that, I mean, Biden did come out last summer and he said, look, I, I disagree with the concept of defund the police. I think it's a clunky slogan. When there were protesters bothering, you know, diners who were finally getting to eat a right. meal somewhere in Washington, D.C. or Philadelphia, he condemned a lot of those protests. But as you point out, many people in Congress, many people that are more active, if you will, uh, pushed back on the president and uh, and it became a point of division there, didn't it? Well, look, and here's the problem. You're right. I don't know of any Democrat who said, I support getting rid of police in America. But the Republicans were able to tag them with that last year. Look at what happened in Virginia. Um, this whole thing about critical race theory. Look, America is going through a course correction in how we teach history. And uh, we don't want it to be a fairy tale. It's got to be the good, the bad, and the ugly. Um, but, but, and so a lot, and, and Republicans use that issue in Virginia. But right away, Democrats scream it was all about race and racism. No. Uh, a lot of uh, moderates and independents in Virginia just want a say in what their kids are being taught. 
again, that's where most Americans are. Listen, uh, the guy, you've been on his show several times, and, and I watch him, uh, Bill Maher, and it's a great example of yeah. going, you know, I can watch for 10 minutes, and I'm like, not a big Sean Spicer guy. That's not me. But when he <laughs> when he lists eight yeah. words that are getting redefined, and, and white supremacy is one of them, victim is one of them, shame is one of them, I'm going... Yeah, you got me here. You got a guy that leans probably a little more left than right, and I think it's we're seeing it now with the idea of cancel culture. And and this is the point, Joe. If you lose a, somebody like me on who who would probably vote Democrat more yeah. than Republican in the states, you lose us or we stay home, which people did do in 2016. You're going to cost yourself election wins. You just are. The uh, the Republicans with Trump. Um, are, are, are manipulating and uh, riling up and lying to often middle-class and working-class Americans. But you, the point you just made, Democrats aren't even listening to them. Uh, working-class and middle-class, again, most Americans, people in the middle, don't shove this wokeness stuff down our throats. Give us time. Teach us about these various things. But, man, if, if that's all you do, you talk about canceling people and, and calling people racist all the time if they don't agree with you, that's not a way to get people to vote for you. Joe Walsh, our guest uh, on Global News Radio Toronto today with Greg Brady. That's that's where I want to go before we get back to some of Tuesday is the concept of cancel culture. We're seeing, I mean, the most prominent example where someone's standing up saying it's not going to be me is, is obviously Dave Chappelle and Netflix. You and I remember the 80s when, if anything, the left was able to frame the right as being like, leave us alone. What we watch on TV is our business. What we do in our bedrooms is our business. And there yeah. was this moral majority, you know, even labeling. I know it was Tipper Gore's thing, but record albums. Well, you can't buy that song, even if, yeah. so. But it's it's flipped now, hasn't it? And and Republicans can really push hard and say that's the party of cancel culture. The far left is exhibiting the elements of cancel culture, not us. Which is Greg? Which is odd because the truth is uh, there are snowflakes on both sides. Yes. I mean, we 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 had a there there was a university down here that disinvited um, a speaker um, because the speaker was pro-choice and a bunch of conservatives on campus demanded that that speaker be disinvited. Donald Trump is the biggest snowflake in the world. He's always wanted to cancel people. But you're right. This has been the domain of the left. And uh, it's why people like Jerry Seinfeld and a number of others don't even go on college campuses anymore. It's just not, it's not, we're so, we're so, people are so easily offended on both sides. Can it get turned around if enough people stand up? If Netflix's CEO says, we don't think people are in physical harm uh, because of Dave Chappelle telling jokes. I watched the special. Yeah, I found some of it homophobic. Yeah, I found some, I found some of Andrew Dice Clay's comedy problematic back then, but I didn't, yeah. you know, I didn't look for new college roommates. Like, I, there is going to be those lines that we have to draw in the sand. So it takes courage. It takes the head of Netflix. It takes uh, the head of somebody, you know, corporate people standing up and saying, stop. It takes, you know, a big dog like Dave Chappelle to say, you're not going to you're not going to force me to be submissive. I'm going to be who I am. It takes courage. It's analogous to because I'm always asked the same question. Why don't what's it going to take for Republicans to stand up against Trump? It's 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 going to take people with courage. You know, you've got me and you've got Cheney and Liz uh, and mm -hmm. Kinzinger and a few others. But but it, it, that, that's what it's going to take before more and more people do. Same thing with cancel culture. But that's a really bad sign, isn't it? When Adam Kinzinger says, you know, it, you know, enough's enough. I won't run again. I might even make the case that I know he quite uh, and ag antagonized the left. But when Paul Ryan says, I don't want to be in politics anymore, like you lose those people who were career politicians, Joe, it, it's a problem uh, to counterbalance Trump, isn't it? He can't win. Yeah. And I know Adam well, Kinzinger and I got elected together. We're from the same state. We're good friends. Mm -hmm. He had no way to win in this party. And he knew that. And by the way, Liz Cheney deep down knows that. Um, if you, and that's, this is the crazy thing about Virginia. A lot of people say in Virginia shows a Republican can win 
you know, you know, the post Trump Republicanism bullcrap. Donald Trump owns that victory. Uh, a young kid, the, the Republicans supported Trump. Uh, Trump endorsed him. Uh, Donald Trump is going to dominate this party. He's going to be the nominee in 2024 because and, and no Republican wants that, but they're not going to say anything. Wow. His uh, his brilliant new podcast is White Flag with Joe Walsh. Uh, like I said, you came uh, banging it out of the gate. Andrew Yang on your show. D.L. D- Hughley on your show. You got John Cryer. He was a riot. I be- he's <laughs> always good. He's always good. And and uh, and and uh, it's just it's such a refreshing take as opposed to here's something that's for people that believe this. Here's something for people that's believe that you're trying to bridge that gap, aren't you? Yeah, I, Greg, I have no interest in sitting down with somebody who agrees with me. I ju- we, we all do that. I just don't want to do that. I want to see if we can find common ground. Because, by the way, I, I have been a pretty divisive politician over the last 10 years. I'm tired of that. I want to see what kind of common ground we can find. Feels better when your head hits the pillow at night, doesn't it? It sure does. <laughs> I'm like that too. I get 29 nice messages about the show, and one guy's like, uh, "What a hack you are!" And I'm like, "Why is that? Why is that, guy, why is that guy getting to me? Why am I? Why am I arguing with strangers? What's wrong with me?" But we got, we all got to break those chies, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Hey, I love being with you, Greg. You're always good. Amazing, amazing stuff, Joe. Thanks very much for the time. I really appreciate it. Uh, I want to bring on our next guest. Always enjoy uh, our chats. Part, and I get to say this every week. It's exciting. I should have previewed it yesterday. Part of the Bad and Bitchy podcast. Yeah. Uh, Erica Eiffel joins me now. It's great to have you on. Thanks for making the time. Hi. Oh, well, hello. Um, listen, we'll start with your... Okay, I don't want to run out of time. So if you want to talk about the Dallas Cowboys... I mean, I don't oh understand God. that choice, first of all. You got Jerry Jones... You know, seventy-nine-year-old man. You know, I, I don't know about that guy. They they signed Greg Hardy six years. Like I'm ready. I, I've got my ammo loaded for why you're still a Cowboys fan. But go ahead. Because they went into Minnesota with their backup <laughs> and came out with a win. How about that? It's hard to find a and it's hard to find an NFL oh, owner no. that you're like that guy's got oh, a lot of virtue. Bro. You know. Mm-hmm. It's not easy. I'm, I'm just saying. You just and you just said exactly. <laughs> Well, who's that's all you've got. Who's, who's the back? biggest? Because my mom doesn't like Tom Brady because he wore. I oh, cover, God, no. but I covered him at Michigan, and okay, so he wore. You know, he had that "Make America Great Again." I don't know how that got there. Maybe somebody set him up and put it in his locker. I don't know. Was that before, or after Deflate Gate? <laughs> I think it was after, and 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 then my mom does her research. She doesn't watch sports to save her life, and then Your she's like, "Mother is a smart woman." Oh, isn't she? And uh, but then she's like, "Well, but but Greg, he left uh, he left Bridget Moynihan while she was pregnant." I'm like, "Do you exactly. want people? Do you want for Giselle? Do you want people staying together on, in on unhappy marriages? We we would if it if Bridget left him, we'd be championing her and saying, "Yeah, go girl, you be independent." <laughs> But because Tom seemed yeah, because like he made Tom Brady, people don't want to be miserable. To g- exactly, you made my point. And Jerry Jones would assign Tom Brady if he'd been able to uh, two years ago. But he doesn't want to live in Texas. Who does? You don't want to live in Texas, Erica. I lived in Texas. So you, do, you don't want to go back to Texas now. You don't. Well, no, no, no. No, no. Okay. What do you think of this? uh, What do you think of this Dave Portnoy thing? I don't want to judge the case, uh, but it seems the the descriptions are harrowing. They're awful. We have to get this investigated. I don't know where it goes. My only weird thing about it, to be honest, is it just seems too obvious. The guy is basically a self-admitted caveman sexist douchebag. Does it seem at all obvious that he would then perpetuate, you know, violent sexual behavior? What do you think? Well, I just, I, I mean, just before, just because you could see it coming when it comes doesn't mean that, you know, you shouldn't say get out of the way, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Like, the guy, I mean, I, this is the thing. Everybody has a right to be a douchebag, but everybody has a right to face the consequences of being a douchebag. And that's the part that people don't get. And so, I mean... I just, it's 2021, almost 2022. I'm tired. I'm tired Mm -hmm. of of all of these cavemen who who come out of the woodwork and drop some some nonsense and then then expect to be treated like what? I don't get it. 
Well, let me give you an example, and this is where we didn't use the phrase cancel culture, and I brought it up with Joe Walsh, my previous guest. I said, Ooh. I didn't like the comedy of Andrew Dice Clay. I didn't get it. I thought it was awful for 1989. I thought it was awful for 1990 standards, and I probably use words then that I'd never use now or haven't for a decade, but... Guess what? We didn't call it cancel culture then. Eventually, people are like, you're not, your act isn't evolving. You made a crappy movie called The Adventures of Ford Fairlane. Nobody said, well, we're canceling you. They just lost interest and they became indifferent. And that happens in art, right? You know, you know that happens in the music industry, the movie. We didn't cancel Andrew Dice Clay. People just got tired of his shtick. And that's what's, I think that's what's happening a lot now. But don't advertisers cancel people all the time? Well, they, I think private companies make decisions to no, move no, no. on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. But wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Advertisers will cancel somebody in a heartbeat. And from what I understand, from what I remember, um, advertisers were like were fleeing him too. So my thing is this, cancel culture or whatever you choose to call it, I call it consequence culture, but whatever. We have a society where there are no consequences for people with power. Okay. And so this is one way of saying, hey, this person is not representing um, whatever. I, I don't know what you want, to, you want to call it, fairness, values, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't want to engage with this person's art or we don't want to engage with this person's whatever, right? Fine. Now, people have a right to turn away from somebody if they don't like them also. And if they do it on mass, then so be it. That's right. But didn't that, ha- didn't that happen with Don Sherry? There's a person of power. There's a person advertisers. I know for a fact, Erica, I'm in that building. I know, I know they want to move off Don Sherry for a couple years. I know that they do. He makes a lot of money. They were trying to save money. The advertisers don't want him to. And then the Remembrance Day poppy thing happens around two years ago at this mm-hmm. time, and they've got their opportunity. So that is an example of a powerful person with influence um, who uh, all of a sudden is abandoned by, by that power structure. I yeah, think. but let's not act like, you know, that citizen activism too didn't have something to do with that. I guess so. Yeah, you're right. You're yeah. right. And, and the influence on the advertisers. Yeah. Are answered to the public too, because they have to sell their, their, the point is, is that there's a system here, right? And, you know, however formal or informal it is, there's a system and you can't put the blame of cancel culture, so to speak. And I use that in heavy quotations yeah. on one part of this system and not on the other parts. Because like I said, advertisers cancel people all the time. The other thing too is, do you really have a right to, because um, we're just talking about canceling somebody really, you're just hurting their economic situation, right? Yeah, yeah. We are not talking about hauling off people to jail for what they say, mostly. You know, hate speech is, a, is obviously an exception. Which is why when people use freedom of speech, that no, there's there's no freedom. There's freedom of speech. There's not freedom of consequence. I can't yell mm-hmm. fire in a crowded theater and not get arrested. But I also, a private broadcaster, at some point can say, hey, you know what? There's there's a million reasons. We don't like what you say. You're offending too many of our I advertisers. You're not bringing in the ratings or the revenue. Eventually, like I don't like like Peter Mansbridge isn't host of the national anymore. He didn't get canceled. That was a decision no. to go in a different direction. It happens. Ann Curry. I, lo- I love that book. That's the morning shows based on. They pushed Ann Curry out because she couldn't get along with Matt Lauer. Now, they may not mm-hmm. have known or accepted what Matt Lauer was behind the scenes then, but it's a bad look now in ret. But but, but Ann, Cur- Ann Curry wasn't bringing home the bacon. So they moved on. But they always back their horse. They choose a horse. Right. Back it. Yeah. Yeah, I, I would say that's absolutely true. Let me get your read on um, some of Tuesday's results and Minneapolis specifically. I, here was my here was my struggle with defund the police as a slogan. I think frightened people. I didn't love it as a. We need to reform it. We need to reshape it. We need bad cops to be uh, you know shine a light, shine a big freaking spotlight upon them, the men and the women, and get them the hell out. But I think, do you buy that defund the police? scared people if you don't if you can't pass this in minneapolis 
where George Floyd was murdered by a cop, where are you going to be able to pass it? People are are concerned that police departments aren't going to be keep their neighborhoods safe if you get rid of them. Um, there's a lot to unpack in what you just said. Okay, so I let's don't even do know it. where to start. Let's do it. Um, defund the police. Okay. So, um, do, do you know, I would like to know what the accountability mechanisms for police departments are. Because it sure as hell isn't police boards. No, it's like, not. And, the, and it's a problem that they investigate themselves, the same as our they military. Of course themselves. it is. Paramilitary, all of that. We keep increasing their resources to police themselves. That's the other thing. For example, <clears throat> in the um, economic and fiscal update of, I believe, 2020, the Trudeau government gave increased police funding for body cameras and for anti-racism or diversity um, efforts. Um, so we're giving the police more money when it's been established that they have a systemic racism problem. So we're giving them more money to police themselves. Like, I, I, don't, I don't understand that. At some, on some level, Police departments need to be held accountable. And I don't think people know how little control we actually have over. I agree. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Absolutely scary. The other thing, too, is that what happens with these movements is that they get co-opted. Look at the word woke. The word woke is a beautiful example of co-optation. You're right. Co-opted. You know what I'm saying. I do. Um, do you do you agree with Bill Burr that uh, this was about this was about getting um, you know uh, people of color their their proper at bats and then it got co opted by basically everyone and, and Bill Burr on Saturday Night Live famously mentioned white women uh, climbing over the fence and <laughs> I will never forget that. Oh, I'm glad you enjoyed that. Good. <laughs> I thought you might. I I laughed because <laughs> it was real. <laughs> you know, you should have seen Twitter after. Every black woman that I saw out of the woodwork was like, mm. there's a little chuckle. I'm just saying. I know. All right. So, so I, I got, I only got a minute. What happened in Minneapolis? Did it surprise you that like they outright no, rejected it? it. No, it doesn't surprise me because as much as, and this happened here too, as much as people say and companies say, we want diversity. We want to do anti-racism efforts. We want to do this. A year later, a year, over a year later, a year and a half later, what have they done? And that means that this is going to be a recurring problem. So they can vote not to defund the police this time. Eventually, these things have a way of chipping through, especially in a generation. Mm. I think people were worried. I agree with you, everything you said. And I think people were worried, well, are we getting rid of police as opposed to yeah. modifying it and putting the resources and making people accountable for action that well, we weren't doing before? But but to defund the police doesn't explain that as a slogan. It was a problem. But but here's the thing. they they We voted for governments, successive governments that cut social services. So everything then... Because we have nobody in the front lines anymore, right? Yeah. Nobody in the second and third, everything falls to the police. So I'm not sure what we're doing as a society. Yeah, it, um, it, it is a problem. These, now, these, like, what, what are we doing? These guys aren't mental health counselors, and they haven't had, and, and women, these men and they women aren't mental health counselors, so they can't be expected. Um, exactly, they're trained. They're not. Like, to not Top 26 in yeah. Scotland uh, is still going uh, on. Many Eiffel, the our guest, the Bad and Bitchy podcast. But a lot of uh, her city leaders, a lot of mayors on Sunday against the Denver Broncos. Yeah. Well, the entire yes, first exactly. world maybe on the way to the Super Bowl. to make a difference. We and should, uh, former we should, Toronto we mayor put something on David this, uh, Miller, next week. Uh, Thanks for our chat. Uh, have a good weekend. Phenomenal advocate for the environment. Eric Eiffel joining us. Solved how the world's great cities are fixing the climate crisis. Still there in Scotland and has participated in some panels and talks and kind enough to make the time to cross back across the Atlantic and join us on Toronto today. David Miller, thank you very much for coming on. I appreciate the time. Uh, it's a pleasure. Good morning, Mr. Brady. What, yeah, what has the experience been like uh, for you uh, and what's been the, uh, the the main emphasis of some of the talks you've been involved in, Dave? Well, I, it's been very interesting. You know, the, these conferences, which are held annually every so often are, are very important. This one happens to be quite important because the national governments are supposed to be uh, at, in Glasgow this time 
finally reaching agreement on how to address climate change quickly. Um, and they're, from my perspective, they're not doing a very good job of that. Uh, but what's really interesting to me is um, notwithstanding the national governments not showing the leadership they, they should, here in Glasgow, there are numerous people, mayors, uh, business leaders, finance in particular, that are really working to try to find real solutions that actually work, that are economic, that create jobs. And from that perspective, it's been pretty exciting. It does feel like um, mayors of cities, uh, and even if these are massive, massive cities, spread way out. Uh, I, I know in Los Angeles, uh, the mayor happens to be there, um, which is Eric Garcetti. Um, I, it's, it's amazing that you can do more quickly, it feels like, than obviously someone that, that runs a vast country, whether it's even Brazil with Bolsonaro, who's not exactly been a friend of the environment since he's run Brazil, but even for Justin Trudeau, even for Joe Biden, feels like when you run a city, you can handle transit, you can handle uh, waste management, you can handle things like that and put policy in place much, much faster and get compliance usually as well. Well, I, I, you're, you're right, Greg, and it's, you know, from my perspective, it's pretty basic. As, as a mayor, your job is to deliver real things on behalf of people, hopefully to make the city a better place to live for, for everyone. Um, you know, national governments are responsible for broad policy, and that, that has a role. But I, I think they find it hard to connect what they say with, with action. Um, so, you know, you mentioned Mayor Garcetti in Los Angeles. Uh, they went to the people of Los Angeles to ask for authority to increase their taxes to build public transit, won the vote. Uh, they got the largest public transit expansion in the history of Los Angeles underway. They were electrifying the buses that were within their legal authority. And they also run their electricity grid, which when he got elected, I think was about 32 percent uh, coal fired. Mm. And by 2030, it's going to be 97 percent clean. And he's not the only example of real meaningful uh, action that is lowering emissions, making air quality better, producing better health outcomes, and making the city uh, an easier place to, to live in uh, for, for its residents. Former Mayor of Toronto, David Miller, joining us. Uh, his book, by the way, called Solved, How the World's Great Cities Are Fixing the Climate Crisis. He's joining us from Scotland, where COP26 continues. Um, and, and I look, obviously, in London, where um, for anybody who's traveled there, they know there's been a congestion charge for a long time. You you did hear the locals grouse about it a little bit at first, but they've gotten used to it. The idea, take public transit, burn less fossil fuels. We don't want a lot of vehicle traffic anyway in, you know, Leicester Square or uh, or drive, you know, don't drive to Buckingham Palace to try and get a glimpse of the Queen. Take public transit or walk. And uh, and Paris and Madrid are catching on to that, too. They're banning gas vehicles from central areas. Um, what are European cities doing right? And they're way, 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 way ahead on on uh, on travel too. Uh, anybody who's ever rode British Rail or the Tube knows that. What are they getting right that North American cities need to catch up to, David? Well, I, I think, you know, those are all great examples that, that uh, you mentioned. I'd, I'd pick, uh, I'd add Barcelona to that list as well. And actually Montreal and, and the current mayor, Valérie Plante, has, has done an amazing job uh, it, it philosophically aligned with those mayors. And what they've done is, for, first of all, when London brought in this low emission zone, which is basically tolls into the city core, mm -hmm. they also, at the same time, they dramatically increased uh, transit service, particularly bus service. So they gave people a choice. And what you're seeing each of those cities do is they're making it much easier for people not to be required to use cars because you can get around uh, on foot, by bike, by transit. And the reward for people is that uh, the air is much better. The cities are vibrant economically. There's this idea of what, what's called 15-minute neighborhoods. Um, you know, I think of it as you know, places like the High Park in Toronto, you know, can you have your needs, whether it's your job, your your shopping, your recreation, uh, et cetera, within a pretty close distance of where you live? And they're creating cities that work that way. And, and the results are popular because the air is much cleaner. You know, kids get less rates of asthma. Mm -hmm. People actually like being able to get to live close to work uh, in an affordable way. And I, 
I think from my perspective, they're, they're certainly the cutting edge. I agree with you there. David Miller is our guest. Um, the mayor of Toronto, John Tory, um, was not at this conference. Um, what's your reaction to that? Should he have been there? Well, I, I think it's a missed opportunity for John. You know, we, we one of the events we put on, we had uh, the mayor of Bogota, Colombia, as a speaker who who is a dynamo. And what she's done in very short order is start building their very first subway. And, you know, these mayors come to these events because they learn from each other. And, you know, when, when you're in that office, you don't have any peers, members of council or colleagues. Mm-hmm. But the buck doesn't stop with them. And I, I've certainly found, know that these mayors all find it incredibly useful to be with each other, talk directly to each other about what's the best thing to do. How did you do it? You know, how did you satisfy the concerns of people who were opposed? Because you can't just uh, impose, you know, uh, all these things. You've got to work with people and, and listen to their reasonable concerns. So, you know, I, I think it's a missed opportunity, and it's, it's uh, too bad. And I, I know he would have uh, really learned a lot and, and valued that had he uh, been able to come. Yeah, John, I think most people in Toronto would say, yeah, if, of all the trips you're going to advocate for, uh, and in a pre-COVID world, as you know, you, you know, there's a trip here to talk about trade, there's a trip here to promote this, to try and advocate for your city, but but even as we're emerging through COVID, um, you know, you, you look and you're going to bring some ideas back. Um, Vancouver's got, I, I know Gregor Robertson's the former mayor of Vancouver, he's been there. Vancouver is one of the greenest cities in the world. Maybe they have a couple natural advantages we don't. But Mayor Tory could have gone, brought some ideas back. And even if not all of them are implemented, even if not all of them can pass through council, you're bringing innovation and, and thought back to, uh, to to people that tunnel vision probably wouldn't have heard about these ideas otherwise. Yeah, and we've seen this happen, I you know, a few years ago now. But I spoke at a conference about Toronto's Better Buildings Partnership, which is a partnership between the city and bridge and, and uh, the operators and owners of the office towers downtown to make those buildings more energy efficient. Uh, the mayor of Melbourne, Australia, heard my remarks and went and created a better buildings partnership there. I mean, it, it really does work, but it's not just that. It is an opportunity mm-hmm. to put Toronto on the international stage. I mean, Mayor Garcetti uh, spoke to the world leaders and delivered directly a message to them about what cities are doing. And, uh, you know, from all sorts of perspectives, it's very helpful when Toronto is seen uh, in these kinds of moments where the, there's the attention of the world. Toronto uh, historically has been a leader on green initiatives. There's a story to tell. I think we need to do better now. We've stalled a bit. But putting us on the world stage, telling that story has lots of, of benefits and is certainly worth the trip. It just feels like cities listening to you. It feels like cities can make um, a dent that uh, is hard to do at, at a national or global level. I know. Look, I do it, too. I throw my arms up in the air and I'm like, you know, the Chinese leader's not even there. What about India? But uh, but it's got to start small before it gets big. There's no point in throwing your arms up the air and saying it's all it's all useless if India and China aren't involved. This is all about the air we breathe and and the transportation we utilize as well. And we can all make a difference. Well, and, you know, on that point, there's actually some great things happening in Chinese cities. They justly get criticized about all the coal-fired plants, and I, you know, I echo that criticism. On the other hand, Shenzhen, China, has completely electrified its bus and taxi fleet. You know, they're, they're, they're way ahead of us, and, and it's because cities are tasked with doing real things on the ground. And, you know, one thing I wanted to mention, Greg, mm-hmm. uh, there, there's something called the Cities Race to Zero which is about committing uh, to, to these high standards to really do climate action. It's not just Toronto. You know, Brampton and Ajax and a, and a whole range of other Canadian cities. Halifax is doing fantastic work. Bridgewater, Nova Scotia, a pretty small town, have uh, Mayor David Mitchell there brought in the very first transit system they've ever had. Now, it's one bus, mm. but it's, you know, it gives people a chance to... to to get around the city cheaply, or the the town really cheaply and conveniently, and they've also got an incredible energy efficiency program that brings down the cost uh, of of energy for for particularly for low income people. So the, these ideas are spreading. It started with the big cities, but when you got nine oh five cities buying in, like like Brampton and Ajax, yeah. I think it shows that there's something there that's happening. 
I only got 30 seconds, but I know, you know, it, it, you're going to work in some soccer. It's amazing how that works itself out. Uh, <laughs> Rangers, Rangers v. Ross County, the last place team in the Scottish. This sounds like Ted Lasso and Richmond taking on Manchester City in the FA Cup. This sounds like, does Ross County have a former college football coach running their program right now? They haven't won in 11 matches, David. <laughs> Look, I can only go to the games that are on when I'm here. That's what's on Sunday. And I'll be there cheering on, and maybe I'll have to cheer for Ross County, or maybe they need a Canadian as an assistant coach. I don't know. Well, if it's, if it's going badly, you might be playing in the second half, given their record. I don't know that that's I don't know that's impossible or not. They don't exactly well, have Jamie Tart. I used Jamie to, be able to put him in the net. So that's all. That's all we need. Enjoy the match uh, at Ebrox Stadium, Rangers there uh, with Stephen Gerrard managing. Uh, have a great time and uh, safe travels back. Okay, thanks a lot, Greg. Keep up the great work. Thank Cheers. you, former mayor of Toronto, David Miller. Our next guest uh, always joins us on Fridays. Uh, he is, of course, biostatistician Ryan Imgren, who announced, by the way, he likes to make announcements. He announced he's gone back to the gym, and he did so with an Instagram post. I'll just leave it at that. I, I can't unsee it, and I don't know why you chose to Photoshop your body, uh, your, your head onto the body of a 22-year-old Brad Pitt. But listen, you do you. That's okay. <laughs> that's it back to the gym that's what it's all about right now <laughs> yeah yeah you're back there what what now you, you took a while what what were you looking for what were the boxes you needed to uh to check to feel safe at the gym yeah i wanted to see how many people went back to the gym with the mandates um i wanted to see you know sort of you know like give it some time like give it a month um you know drive by the gym on a regular basis see how many people were there um it, especially with the capacity limits eventually being lifted, I wanted to see what kind of an impact that had at the gym. Um, and I found that it didn't impact at least the gym that I saw. Um, it didn't have a really big change in the number of individuals that were being allowed into the gym. Um, in fact, you know, they never reached the, the capacity limit before. So even when it was off, it made zero impact on the numbers at the gym. So that was a big thing that I was waiting for. I think the mandates have made everybody look. It, this has been a uh, I wouldn't even call it a vicious circle, but it's chicken and egg. It, it gets people to feel more comfortable. I think every every new experience um, during this this pandemic, where you feel comfortable eating in a restaurant, so you go again and you feel comfortable. I, I had a great time at the movies last week with my thirteen year old. I'll go back in the gym. No different. Um, the mandates have allowed us to feel that sense of confidence. That's why I bristle. Obviously, I bristle at the idea of an unvaccinated teacher. The TTC union is pushing back in support of maybe, I don't know, eight or nine percent of their members that aren't vaccinated. And um, I just think it's not like unlike social media, Ryan, often there's a loud minority of people and the 91 percent shrug their shoulders and just move on with their life. We're very much catering to a small population when we're challenging mandates, aren't we? It's a small population that's actually challenging the mandates. And I think that if you put the mandate in like place, you're going to get so many people vaccinated that like truly what you're going to be left with in terms of who is actually not going to get vaccinated and will actually be terminated when push comes to shove is even a smaller minority of that already small minority. Um, and that's what we've seen when we've you know seen mandates done at hospitals, various like police forces. We see that when a set date is in place, most people almost the whole entire population at that one site are going to get vaccinated. I think both you and I have been um, critical, um, clearly, of, of at times, uh, the Ford government and the uh, education ministry. Schools may be succeeding to some extent, maybe in spite of themselves. But I also think we've been fair and, and you know, reasonably minded about about the unions and about the boards of education. Um, it, like, it, it's amazing that people will see you criticize Doug Ford or Stephen Lecce and just say, look, this this ain't right. And I've done the same. I've been equally um, tough on the unions who just who just went la di da all spring and summer long when they could have been a lot more ready and got their members vaccinated and campaigned to do so. Yeah, and I think the unions on all fronts spent a lot of time not looking for loopholes, but just you know explaining a lot what would happen if you don't get vaccinated. Here's what we do: we're going to fight for you. We're going to do this. We're going to do this. And they spent so much time on that they. It, it could have easily come across in one paragraph. There's a vaccine mandate at your work. We strongly encourage every single person to get vaccinated. 
not this, you know, six or seven page document about what you can do if you don't feel like getting vaccinated, how the exemption process mm -hmm. works. We should have been encouraging it from the start. With that being said, I also think some of that should have come a long time back um, when we should have actually prioritized education workers. And, and I think that's mm -hmm. kind of the funny thing that we've only talked about mandates for healthcare workers and education workers. We got healthcare workers vaccinated first, but we really pushed education workers to the back of the line. So I can see how, you know, it's odd that we want that mandate for them, but they really weren't anywhere even near the middle of the line when it came down to vaccinations. Ryan Imgren, biostatistician, our guest. So you're seeing and you document in your daily uh, reports on, on your Twitter account uh, an increase in RT. Is this simply about big crowds, huge gatherings, um, Leafs games, Raptors games, full gyms, full restaurants? What do, what do you see it as? And and is it as concerning as it, it can't be as concerning as it would have been a year ago, given many of these cases are probably vaccinated asymptomatic cases? Absolutely. It's certainly not as like concerning. We're seeing NRT now just slightly above one. Funny enough, it's been above one going back to the transmission date of around October 25th, 26, which was when they lifted like capacity limits. Now, what I'm hoping from that is that we're seeing more cases because capacity limits were lifted in like areas where we have individuals vaccinated. So I'm hoping that all that increase is strictly in the vaccinated population. Now, mind you, some of those cases will carry over into the unvaccinated population, but we can definitely withstand an uptick in cases when it comes down to cases in the vaccinated population. So if that's what we're seeing is an uptick in that population of cases, I have very little concern with the RT being above one. You've been coming on our show a long time. You've been you've been you know talking with me on this radio station a long time, and 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 I appreciate the information, the conversations we have, the loyalty to that. I know you turned down other opportunities to do this show in this station, and I appreciate that. If you could send a message though to all the media, one of the things that drives me crazy, and I'm not trying to throw stones from inside the building, but uh, but the idea of leading with cases drives me crazy. We don't talk about positivity rate. We don't talk about hospitalizations, which have absolutely not coupled in this case in Ontario and, and in many uh, provinces. Hospitalizations aren't coupling right now with cases. Uh, is there a message you'd send and say, if you if 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 you got to get the right headline and you got to get the right first couple sentences of a story for a talk show host for a, a TV newscaster, what would you tell them? What are they doing right? What could they do better in terms of in terms of real data? Yeah, I think all that we really need to look at now is the actual growth rate. We know that no matter where in the world you are, if you see that reproduction rate skyrocket above one, if you see that like growth rate, you know, all of a sudden shoot up. That's not a good situation because eventually hospitalizations are going to shoot up as well. If you have a like tripling in the number of, of uh, like cases, you'll see a tripling in the number of hospitalizations. So what I would want to see the focus on is simply the growth rate of cases. And maybe too, at the exact same time, what's a sustainable growth rate? Once again, we have a growth rate of cases. It's slightly above one. That's okay. We're not worried about that. But if it's sustained and it's significantly, if we see cases doubling, that's a problem. We don't need to talk about case counts anymore. No, we've really. We've we have become absolutely immune to those numbers. I don't think if you go back to my Twitter feed, I don't think I have said a daily case count um, probably in five or six months. It's just one stat that I find absolutely useless. Yeah, I see this headline in the in the star. Toronto COVID-19 infections on the rise after prolonged drop. Well, the daily infections on a seven day average went from 50 to 59. That tells me nothing. Who are they? Are they fully vaccinated? What's their age? Are they out of danger because they're fully vaccinated and in their 30s and 40s? It gives me no data whatsoever on that. Absolutely. And I think that's also key, too, that we know who these cases are in, whether it be even the age groups or whether it be the vaccination status of those individuals. Um, you know, once again, this raw case count is just simply not a good thing to be looking at, especially mm. because it varies so much throughout the week. We know every Monday, Tuesday, we're going to see very, very few cases and we can't base it off that. And we also know Friday, Saturday, Sunday, we're going to see cases go up. And the worst thing we can have is, you know, Saturday comes, oh, look, we're back at the 500. That's okay. It's that whole weekly fluctuation. 500, not, not a big deal. Where were we that whole entire week? 
what's the overall growth rate like when it comes to cases? Yeah, I got about 45 seconds. You, you've talked about PPE and inferior PPE in schools, but in healthcare settings too, um, like going to my father-in-law at long-term care, I'm taking off what I think is a very sturdy mask and I'm putting on one of those small blue medical masks that that just don't fit and there's there's slippage. Like this is still a massive problem, isn't it? Yeah, well, you know what? Schools say they do it with staff because there's some kind of a written rule, which they're kind of misinterpreting. But when it comes down to individuals going into a hospital or a long-term care facility, there's no law that they have to wear the hospital's PPE. It's simply what I believe is the hospitals forcing their inferior PPE on people coming in so that they can make their staff, who they're forcing to also wear inferior PPE, not like question things like, why is this patient coming in wearing better PPE than I am? That's right. Shouldn't I be wearing the same stuff that they are? Yeah. Has anyone tried to mug your kid for his uh, his uh, N95 mask at recess? Or does that not happen? Not yet. yet. <laughs> not yet. <laughs> well, it, hey, listen, if he goes to the gym like you do, he's got nothing to worry about. I mean, we all have to stand our, stand our ground on the schoolyard at some point in time. Uh, that hasn't changed. I loved having you on. Uh, have a great weekend. See you later, Greg. Take care. Ryan Imgrind, uh, biostatistician, our guest. Thanks for listening to the Toronto Today podcast. Hope you have a great weekend. We're back with a live show on Monday, November the 8th. Don't forget to turn your clocks around this weekend. If you're listening on Sunday, technology's probably already done it for you, but you're well aware that we're gaining an hour of sleep Saturday going into Sunday. We'll talk Monday morning. Thanks for listening.